Um, I'm going to do something a little different now because I got ahead of myself earlier and forgot to do this. Um, uh, but before we do, and guys, I'm going to, uh, I hope I don't mess you up by asking you to do this, okay? So we're just going to throw a little curveball at you right now. I'm talking to the guys in the sound booth. Can we bring up that song, um, A Christian Home? Can you do that for me? Because I loved what that said. There we go. Okay. Uh, give us a home built firm upon the Savior where Christ is head and counselor and guide. Next part. I love this. No, go back. There. Right there. Stop. <laughs> Where every child is taught his love and favor and gives his heart to Christ, the crucified. That should be our goal for our kids. We often pray this, that the circle will be unbroken around the throne someday. And we pray for our our daughters and their husbands and for our grandkids, especially for our grandkids. Oh, how we want them to know Jesus. You know, listen, our, our... Our grandkids are growing up in a a world that is totally different from what we experienced in our growing up years. Um, And uh, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the pressure that's placed on them to believe uh, what we as a culture have said is truth now. Do you know what I mean? Um, we heard a, a, we went to church with our kids last week when we were in Vancouver, Washington. They attend a great church. They, have, they get excellent scriptural preaching from the pulpit. And um, the pastor there was talking about the, the passage in Ephesians that deals with husbands and wives and, and how our, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the age has twisted that. And made it something that the scripture never intended for it to be. And there is that deception. I mean, that's not the only area where the spirit of the age has brought deception into our culture. And, um, uh, and that's the world our grandkids are growing up in. And, uh, folks, uh, our, our, our general superintendent, um, uh, at district assembly that we were at this week, uh, one of the things he emphasized was the importance of prayer. Um, he talked about his own salvation and how his mother had been on his her knees in prayer for him and and the critical role that played in bringing him to Christ. And boy, if there, ever there was an important time to be praying for our kids and our grandkids, and if, if you've got them great-grandchildren, it's now. All right? Okay, thank you. Now, um, I actually have a video clip that I wanted to pray, play for uh, you, uh, you today, men. And we're going to go ahead and show that right now, if we can.
my wife cry. <laughs> well, God's blessing upon all of you men. Uh, this is not a Father's Day sermon. I didn't preach a Mother's Day sermon this year. I'm continuing in the series from Romans, and that's where we are today. Um, you know, Paul was not addressing the city of Rome in the book of Romans. He was addressing the church at Rome. And, um, uh, you know, there was an interesting mix there of Jew and Gentile. And, and we've already talked about some of the issues that arose there. And so in, in chapter 15, I see Paul talking here about what I think are some critical elements, attributes that must be present in God's church. Um, I grew up for most of my childhood and teen years living close to my maternal grandparents, my grandma and grandpa Moore. My grandma, all four foot ten of her, was a, a wonderful cook. In fact, my grandma was a homemaker. That's what she did, and she was really good at it. Uh, she never had a job outside her home. She never learned to drive. Um, she was a homemaker. That's, that's what she did. Um, and I loved going to her house to eat. Um, in fact, in my high school years, I ate lunch at my grandparents' house almost every day. Um, we had an open campus at the high school I attended. And so we could leave during the lunch hour. Um, and my grandparents lived a few few blocks from the high school, and my grandfather, who worked for the city, came home for lunch every day. And so we had lunch together. Now, my grandmother knew her way around the kitchen, and everything she made was good. I watched her cook all kinds of things, and I don't recall that she ever used a recipe. Um, she might have had recipes, but I think most of the things she made, she'd made enough times that she just had those recipes committed to memory. And so she knew the ingredients that went into those things by heart. Um, I had my grandma's cooking favorites, you know, the things that she made that I really loved. You might, you, you might have had those too. Um, yeah, her cinnamon rolls were top shelf. Um, you know, the things we had, she made uh, brown beans and ham. She made homemade chicken noodles. Um, I think Carol was talking about her mom, you know, making the noodles and hanging them up to dry. Um, she made... Roast beef and pork roast, and then she'd take the less leftovers and make hash out of them. Homemade hash. My grandma did things that, um, what would you say, the health people today would have heart palpitations over. Because <laughs> she didn't store everything in the refrigerator. She'd put it in the oven, the cooled oven. And that's, you know, and we'd eat it the next day and nobody died. I don't know, maybe I built up immunities or something, but... So, 
what made the things Grandma cooked so good? Now we can always say the love that went into them, and that's absolutely true. And I, she had her secrets, I suppose. Maybe some things she did that the grandma next door didn't do. Uh, you know, she might have had some secret ingredients or a special way that she prepared or cooked certain things. But you know, none of the things my grandma made wouldn't have been good without some basic ingredients. I mean, there's some basic ingredients that go into every cinnamon roll and, you know, every other dish that my grandmother cooked. So, without those basic ingredients, I wouldn't have had cinnamon rolls or meatloaf or chicken and noodles. I mean, you have to have noodles and chicken, right? And I guess you could say that those basic ingredients are successful, vitally successful to creating those different good things to eat. Correct? Basic ingredients. Well, Paul, in the passage of Scripture that Dean read for us today, is listing for us some basic vital ingredients that must be present in any church where there are differences of opinion regarding disputable matters Some basic ingredients must be present in every church where there are differences of opinion regarding disputable matters, which is true in every church that I know about. I mean, do we agree on everything? Yeah, it'd be boring, wouldn't it? If we're going to honor God and treat each other with love and be effective as a church, then here are some essential ingredients that must be present in a church that functions as God intended and where we love each other. So, a church that functions the way God wants it to must, first of all, constantly have consideration for one another. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus is saying, the insults of those who insult you, Father, have fallen on me. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this, and this is verses 23 and 24. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And he's not just talking about for me, he's talking about for us. Okay? Everything is permissible. Now, we're talking about disputable matters here. Well, let's not get to thinking, well, we're talking about the Ten Commandments too. Hey, if you want to lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, it's permissible. It's just not beneficial. No, he's not talking about the basics. The things that God has says a definite yes or a definite no about. He's talking about disputable matters. Okay? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So when it comes to these disputable matters, these things that the Scripture doesn't have clear instruction about, 
Some of us are going to have an opinion that says this about that thing. Some of us are going to have an opinion that says this about that thing. It's going to be different than yours. But listen, when we have that opinion, we have to consider how it impacts others in the body of Christ. Because we're supposed to care about each other. We're supposed to care about the impact the way we live our, our lives affects one another. And people said an enthusiastic... <laughs> what do they say? Let me get a witness or something like that. I forget. I don't say stuff like that, but I know some people do. So... In any congregation, you have a mix of people. Some who have been here here for a long time, some not as long as others. Um, We're some of the short-timers here, actually, aren't we? A a lot of you have been a part of this church for a long time. When Paul wrote to the churches in Rome, the question was not how long people have been there, but how they applied their faith to the situation they lived in in that church. It didn't... It had nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian or, or, you know, long time, short time. That wasn't the issue. If you remember from chapter 14, the biggies had to do with whether or not you ate meat and the celebration of certain religious holidays as well as which day is the proper day for worship. And so there were, there was some conflict over that. And Paul said these are disputable matters. They're matters that we can have different opinions about. The meat, you know, the meat issue had nothing to do with eating at the most popular steakhouse in town. It's like, it wasn't about where you get the best sirloin or New York strip or, but it did have something to do with the religious background that some of the people had come from. That was the issue here. For those that had come from Judaism, it was unthinkable to eat meat that had been offered to a pagan idol. Just unthinkable. In the pagan practice, worshippers offered meat to idols. And some of it the priests ate, very much like in the Jewish tradition, except those sacrifices were offered to Jehovah God, so it was okay to eat that meat. But... There was a similar practice in in the pagan religions. They offered meat to idols. Some of their priests ate that meat. And some of that meat found its way to the public meat markets. So, these Jewish Christians, for whom idol worship was absolutely forbidden, they found themselves facing a dilemma. What if the meat they bought at the market had been offered to an idol? They were serving Christ now, not these idols, so they thought it was wrong to eat that meat. And since there was no way of knowing which meat was or which meat wasn't offered to an idol, they decided we won't eat meat at all. At the same time, there were those that had come to, to, to faith in Christ by a different route. They came from a pagan background and they said, Christ has given us freedom from such problems. After all, God has created everything, and God is over everything. Those idols do not really exist. Those gods aren't real. Just thank God and eat your meat. Their faith was strong enough to overcome that problem. But it 
But it wasn't that easy for all the new Christians, especially if they came from a, a Jewish background. So if you're, if you're one with a strong faith, in other words, it's okay to eat that meat. Really? Is it okay to eat that meat? Do you eat that meat or not? And Paul, the principle Paul lays down here is this. If by eating meat you, off- you offend a weak Christian, then don't do it. Big babies. Now, we don't have that. We don't have the, well, not in a relationship to God kind of sense do we have that problem today. I know we have people who they don't eat meat for various reasons. I personally am a committed carnivore. (laughs) But if you don't do that, that's okay with me. If you have your reasons... But we tend not to have that problem in the church anymore. I mean, usually it's more of a dietary thing, and I don't because whatever. As Paul says in in Romans chapter 14 that we've looked at previously, we don't live to ourselves and we don't die to ourselves. The decisions we make, the actions we take, we know affect the rest of the church family. And, again, some people might object and say, hey, wait a a minute, that's not fair. Does that mean we always need to give in to those who are weak in their faith? But that's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, are we developing the habit of living our life of faith with an eye to the faith of others in the family of God? In other words, how does the way I live out my faith affect the faith of others in the church? Paul again writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say how he gave up the glories of heaven, humbled himself, took on the humanity, and then offered himself on a cross at the very hands of those he came to save. His own creation put him to death. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we're supposed to have that kind of humble giving attitude, willing to sacrifice for others that Christ said. So now in consideration of the weakness of others, Jesus is our example. It says that the insults in in this chapter, what I just read, excuse me, 15 verse 3, it says that the insults of those who insulted God fell upon Christ. In other words, for Jesus, not pleasing himself meant bearing the insults directed at God. And that's exactly what he did. His enemies accused him of being demon-possessed. Of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now Jesus kind of debunked those accusations, but those are the accusations that were the insults that were, that were given to him. 
They accused him of being an illegitimate child. They called him a Samaritan, which was a, a racial slur meant to disgrace him. When they finally succeeded in having him arrested, they spit in his face. They pulled the hair out of his beard and slapped and punched and beat him. They had him flogged and then crucified. And even when he hung on the cross, they were not satisfied and continued to hurl abuse at him. If you're really God's son, just jump down from there. You know, I, when I think about, I mean, it was bad enough going to the cross, but when he hung there and they're still and said, you know, if you really are God, that's the point where I would have been tempted to say, watch this. <laughs> I'm not God. Everybody knows that. Remember the song, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free? Boy, I would have been tempted to do that. He might have been too, but he didn't, re- he didn't succumb to that temptation. He j- continued to bear the insults of those who are weak, us. Why did Jesus bear that sort of abuse? Why did he let such disgraceful things fall upon him? And again, it's because we are weak. Romans 5, 6 says that when we were powerless, when we were weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. We were too weak morally and spiritually to keep God's law. Too weak to please God by our behavior and our own strength. Too weak to gain entrance into heaven by reason of our good works. And it was when we were yet weak that Christ died for us. He is our example of not pleasing ourselves, but having consideration for those weaker than us. Amen. The second thing that must be present is to consistently give attention to the study of Scripture. God's Word. The book. I am dismayed and have been over the years in pastoral ministry at how little of the book some people who have been Christians for years actually know and understand. And uh, I think there's a woeful ignorance of, of Scripture. And folks, even if you don't study it, at least read of it. Read it. Some of it is bound to stick. You know, I uh, I've thought over the years that sometimes uh, I think there's this problem that exists sometimes in the church, and it's not necessarily about believers in their understanding of or knowledge of Scripture or not. It's about people who come to church that don't know Jesus, but they come to church, they get start to get scriptural teaching and they apply that to their lives. They haven't put their faith in Christ yet, but they're getting scriptural teaching and, apply, and they apply that to their lives. And you know what? God's stuff works. 
God's stuff works. And so whether you have a faith in Christ or not, if you're living by scriptural principles, God's stuff works. And your life starts changing. And, and, and suddenly when you start doing things the way God said you're supposed to, life kind of improves. And so I think what happens then is people think, I'm good to go. I went to church and things got better and I'm good to go. And, and I'm concerned that they think that that is the saving thing that's happened in their lives. Church. Church. I go to church. It's not I have a saving relationship with Jesus. I go to church. We want you to come to church. The critical factor is putting your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And then this thing about the Scripture becomes even richer and more meaningful and important to you. That was just a, what our uh, GS say, an advertisement. That was an advertisement. Um, verse 4 here. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. The Scripture. Uh, I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse for us. He says, God wants the combination of His steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in Scripture to come to characterize us, keeping us alert for whatever, whatever He will do next. When we study God's Word, we gain insight, we receive hope. You know, and again, I've already made reference to this, there are some Christians who almost never crack open the Bible. And I've got to tell you that I really have no, no idea how they can live a victorious, fulfilling life. If they, if they ate like they spend time in the Word, they would starve to death. The Bible shows us the mind and heart of God. The stories of the Bible are the, sto- are the stories of who God is and how He loves us and how He interacts with mankind. And there's no better way than the Scripture to get to know what God really cares about. When we read the Bible, when we meditate on God's Word, something profound happens that by the work of the Holy Spirit can transform us. Remember how this whole business in Romans chapter 12 got started? There's verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. But the second verse, verse 2, says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? It's right here. Soak this in. It'll change the way you think. When we are transformed by the Scripture, it is into the likeness of Jesus. That's what God wants His Word to do for us, is to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Christ-likeness. And listen, when we're like Jesus, we're attractive to people around us because we're unselfish, we're caring, we're concerned about others. Does that sound like Jesus? We live our lives in such a way as to be a blessing to others. And here's what the Scripture says about Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture 
Is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work? 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The scripture. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active. For the God, word of God is living and active. It's not a 2,000 year old document that was just about what needed to be said to people 2,000 years ago. Oh, it's out of date. We're smarter than that now. No. For the Word of God is living and active. It was then, it is now. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. It cuts to the very core issues of our lives. That's what it's saying. Joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The New Living Translation says this about, well, translates Hebrews 4.12 this way, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes your innermost thoughts and desires. And listen, folks, you will not experience the benefits of the Word unless you're in the Word. The third thing that must be present, continually maintain a spirit of unity. Boy, have we shot ourselves in the foot at times as the church of Jesus Christ because of our lack of unity. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't denominational differences. I'm not saying that there aren't theological differences. We should have some disagreement about some of those things. What I'm talking about is unity within the body over disputable matters and stupid stuff. Like, I really, really, really wanted maroon-colored cloth on the pews. And I'm mad. What color is that anyway? Is it green? Okay. Uh, the carpet's green. Is right? Just a different shade. See? And I don't like that combination, by the way. Could we change that? And if we don't, I'm out of here. Well, somebody just waved goodbye to me. That wasn't very loving. He said, I'm saying, oh my goodness. And, and you've got people on the outside looking in. Right? They're watching. And they're saying, do you see the stupid thing that church is split over? Really? Grow up. Act like a Jesus follower. There's a story of a church that had to make the difficult decision about cutting down a big shade tree in the parking lot. An older man in the congregation argued long that they preserved this tree, but the decision was made to go the other way. They were going to cut it down. 
On the day they cut it down, he was the first one to show up. Someone said, I thought you didn't want that tree cut down. He said, I don't. But we decided to cut it down, so I'm here to help. That's harmony. Not, I'm mad. I'm out of here. I'm staying home. Paul prayed in verse 5 that the Roman church would have a spirit of unity among themselves as they follow Jesus Christ because that speaks so loudly. And unity, by the way, is not conformity. I've kind of touched on that already. Listen, if we all thought and act and looked and dressed alike, it would be boring. We'd be like robots. I think sometimes that's how we kind of view unity. It's kind of this dull picture. And I think the one of the things that makes the church dynamic and interesting and effective is the fact that we aren't all alike. That's what the gifts is all about. God's given us each a different set. And we come together, we mesh together in unity to get the job that God has called us to do done. It's called our mission. So we have different strengths and weaknesses. You know, I'm not the complete package. You may not know that, but I'm not the complete package. You know, there's some things I do well and there's some things that you do well and we complement one another. But we're a team. And there's unity among us. So we move together like this as a unit, don't we? In the Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that Linus change the TV channel, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asked Linus. These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together into this single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. What channel do you want, asked Linus. Then turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, Why can't you guys get organized like that? Unity, it's what Jesus prayed for. It's something the earliest church was known for. Read Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4 if you want to learn more about that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you live in harmony, unity with one another. Be sympathetic, love us, brothers. Be compassionate and humble. You know, sometimes the hardest place to do that is within the family, isn't it? We can, you know, somebody who doesn't know us, a stranger out there, we can, but we just know each other too well, and I can, you know, please. I'm going to change the way we do things in the office because I don't like the way you do them. No, I won't if I'm smart. <laughs> the kind of unity the church has has a beneficial result. People look at the church that's unified and they praise God. How does that all ball group that gets together on Sunday do that? 
when members of the church are truly accepting and supporting of weaker brothers, people will look at the church and say, praise God for how they take care of the weak. Praise the Lord for how they accept one another. Praise the Lord for how they pull together, how they build each other up. The God who makes people love one another the way those people love one another must be some kind of God. Maybe I'd like to find out more about that. And that isn't that, after all, what we want people to say about God and us? And then finally, this thing. To be the church that we need to be, we need to be completely accept one another. To accept people is to be for them. I'm not talking about approval of behavior, but it's to be for them. It's to be in their corner. It's to be supportive of them. It's to, be, it's to want God's best in their lives. And sometimes that means dynamic change. It's to recognize it's a very good thing that these people are alive and part of us. And to long, again, for the best for them. It does not, of course, mean, again, to approve of everything they do. That is not a loving thing to do. Our world has made us think that to say, you know, go ahead, I'm good with that. that that's the loving thing to do. Why would you encourage someone to keep do, doing something that put their, puts their soul in danger and say that's a loving thing? good thing to do. Why would you do that? Now, I think you have to, if you're going to confront those things, you certainly have to do it in the right way. But to give just our approval to say, well, just live your life, do the things you want to do. There's nothing loving about that. It means to continue to want what is best for their souls no matter what they do. And, after comparing the difference in the way Jesus and the teachers of the law dealt with a woman caught in adultery, you remember that story? They bring this woman who's been caught in adultery to Jesus. I always wondered where the guy was. But anyway, they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus because it was the death penalty, right? So, they thought they would get Jesus on this one. They were always trying to get Jesus, weren't they? And then, it's like, how do you do They'd walk away, scratching their heads and trying to figure out the next uh, kind of trick they'd pull on him. So they bring this woman to Jesus, caught in adultery. They wanted to throw stones. And Jesus did this thing. We're not quite sure what he did, what he was... But he got down on the ground and he started writing in the dust. And there's this conjecture about what he was doing. Maybe he was writing different sins or even writing the names of people, the, the group of men that brought this woman. But they started disappearing one by one, oldest to youngest. Pretty soon there was nobody there. Jesus said, where are your accusers? And she said, well, there aren't any. And what did Jesus tell her? What did Jesus tell her? Go and sin no more. He didn't say, oh, well, listen, no problem with the adultery. It's okay. Listen, these guys aren't here anymore. Just, no. He loved her. But he also said, you need to quit doing what you're doing. 
Because it's not loving to let somebody do something that endangers their soul. John Ortberg writes this about that particular situation. Amazingly enough, radical acceptance does what condemnation and judgmentalism and self-superiority could not do. It produced a changed life. In other words, God didn't say you are disgusting. Jesus didn't say you are disgusting. I shouldn't even have to be dealing with this problem. No. But he didn't shake his finger in her face either, did he? But he did make it clear that what she was doing was not something he should be doing. I think she went away changed, don't you? We accept others because Jesus has accepted us. We kind of think, well, adultery, that's pretty disgusting. God was lucky to get me. I didn't do stuff like that. We should have laughed at that one. Welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. So we have to ask ourselves, how did Jesus welcome me? What did he give up for me? I know what he gave up for me. Same thing he gave up for you. He gave up his life. He could have stayed in heaven where he was equal with God, but he emptied himself. You know, I think we have this tendency to think, well, humans are pretty special. And in many ways we are, but I've told you before about my amoeba theory. Have I told you about my amoeba theory? Amoebas are to us as we are to God. In other words, there's such an exponential difference between amoebas. No amoeba could comprehend human beings and human behavior, right? Can amoeba figure us out? No way. And I think that's the quantum difference between us and God. He's that far above us. So when it says Jesus emptied himself to become a human being, it's the truth. It's like basically us saying, you know what, I think I'll go and be an amoeba for a while. Jesus emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By the way, don't, don't get the impression when I make, share my amoeba theory with you that you know, we're somehow not these slimy little things that really aren't important to God. Jesus wouldn't have died for us if he thought of us that way. So, what did these things mean for the Christians at Rome? Paul asks, if you're one of the strong Christians, is it asking too much to give up your freedom to eat meat, to encourage and build up those weak in faith, when Jesus gave up his life so that we could be welcomed into his family, us who are weak? Jesus serves as our example. Someone has said that believers are like grains of wheat being ground together to make bread. Each ingredient contributes something to the final loaf. In fact, the final product looks and tastes nothing 
like the separate ingredients. That is so true. Maybe we can think of these four ingredients that I've just shared with you today. Constantly having consideration for one another. Consistently giving attention to the study of Scripture. Continually maintaining a spirit of unity. Completely accepting one another. Maybe we can think of these four ingredients as a multigrain bread, like something we might buy in the store. In church, members show consideration for each other. We study the Scriptures. We live in unity. And as we follow Jesus, we become needed into this fellowship of faith and if these ingredients are present we will function as the church God wants us to be and I think the people who are our guests at times will sense that and they'll say so this, this could be something I might want to be a part of. Wouldn't that be great? Pray with me. Father, help us to be the kind of church that Paul was encouraging the Roman church to be.